Thank you, James. Thank you, Laura, for the prayers. Really helpful. And good morning, everybody. You warm enough? Uh, as some of you know, we live down in Shoreham, where there's an icy breeze. And it's a great place to live anytime, especially if, like us, you like walking or maybe ambling. You can walk by the sea, you can walk up on the downs, you can walk along the banks of the river, the Ada, and there it is, the River Ada. No, back one, back one, back one. The River Ada, that is the Ada, meandering uh, towards the sea, taken from its most beautiful uh, vantage point above the cement works, but never mind. <laughs> so the next picture reminds us lots of Sussex uh, rivers meander, don't they? Do you recognise where this one is? It's not Shoreham. Where is it? <laughs> it's Cookmere Haven, that's right. Uh, and there's another picture of, uh, of the same place. This is uh, uh, a depiction by uh, Eric Revilius. It's almost emblematic of Sussex, isn't it? Uh, Eric Revilius, the famous war artist. But going back to the Ada, running alongside it is a cycle track up along the Ada Valley. Some of you may have even cycled it. It's the Downs link that links the South Downs up to the North Downs. Apparently, it's 37 miles long. And the cycle track follows the route of the old railway, so it's a lot straighter. So if you walk, say, from Bramber down to Shoreham, which is about four miles, you have a choice, even if you're walking. Do you walk along the meandering river or do you stick to the cycle path, the straighter path, the railway route? I wonder which you would go for. But why am I talking about Sussex rivers? This is, you know, tourist uh, information about Shoreham by sea. No, I'm talking about the rivers because I remember a few years ago someone commenting that as we look back over the way that God works in our lives, so often it looks much more like a meandering river than it does like a straight cycle track, straight railway track. And they were right, weren't they? And you usually see it as you look back. The way God works in our lives so often looks much more like a meandering river than like a straight track. It's like that for us personally, and at the moment, maybe it feels a bit like that for us as a church too. For those of you who are visiting uh, and new for the first time this morning, you may have picked up that as a church, we're looking for our next minister. And it's been a year now, though I have to say it feels longer, doesn't it? And there have been moments, moments when we thought we were nearly there, only to discover that there was another meander for us to loop around. And we wonder why, don't we? Is it us? Are we doing something wrong? What is it that God's saying to us in all of this? And in particular this morning, what is God saying to us from this passage from Paul's letter to the Philippians, where he says, 
I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Paul's writing this letter from prison, and he's writing it to a church he obviously loves. Now, they're no more a perfect church than any church is. They're a congregation that's struggling to be faithful in a challenging world. Does that sound familiar? They're worried about the future. And they need God's guidance as they deal with potentially damaging disagreements among themselves. And in their challenging situation, Paul offers them this incredible encouragement. God, he says, God who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion right until the day of Christ Jesus. Even when they don't understand what God is doing, they can trust that God is at work. Amen? God has begun a good work in them, just as God has begun a good work in us. And the one who has begun a good work will carry it on to completion, on uh, that completion that comes on the day of Christ Jesus, that day when God will bring his whole work of creation and redemption to completement, to fulfillment, when the earth will be filled with the glory of God as the waters cover the sea. What God has begun, he will continue in all the wisdom of his love until he brings it to completion. But along the way... Well, along the way, there are times when what God's doing doesn't make sense to us, does it? And there are times when, to be honest, we just don't like it. Back in 2011, uh, Peter, my husband, accepted the post of principal at the South Wales Baptist College in Cardiff. And although it meant for me leaving local church ministry in South London, which I loved and which I was thoroughly stuck into, we both actually felt that this was the call of God. And to be honest, I assumed I'd settle as a minister in the area before too long. It would all be fine. And a local Baptist family in South Wales, they were very positive too, full of ideas of where I'd fit. It all sounded very encouraging. Until... Until a couple of months before we were due to move, we were at the Baptist Assembly, which was up in Blackpool that year. And on the Friday night, Jeff Lucas, a name some of you will know, a well-known Christian writer and speaker, he was talking, and he's always good to listen to. But as he finished, he asked that as an act of recommitment, we pray together the Methodist Covenant Prayer, Wesley's Prayer, <coughs> that Methodists pray at their annual covenant service once every year as their recommitment. And it's quite a prayer. It begins, I am no longer my own, 
but yours. We can say amen to that one. Put me to what you will. Rank me with whom you will. Put me to doing. Put me to suffering. And then it goes on. <clears throat> Let me be employed for you or laid aside for you. And when we got to those words, laid aside for you, I just couldn't say them. I choked on them. They utterly floored me. Because I guess in that moment, I knew what was coming. And everything inside me said, no, Lord, I do not want to be laid aside, almost for you or for anyone. And I have to say that the next couple of years were really hard. And in many ways, they were probably harder for Peter than they even were for me, because, of course, it was all his fault, wasn't it, you know? Really hard, as one situation after another, which by every human measurement should have opened up, didn't. And I have to tell you that my nose still feels bruised from what feels like doors slamming in my face. Some of you may have had similar experiences. But what was God doing? And what had I done wrong? Now I have to tell you that eventually things did open up and before we left Wales I had the opportunity to do for me what was the best job in the whole world uh, as a regional minister in South Wales. But before that, before that, God, who had begun a good work in me, was continuing it, just not in the way I wanted. You see, it all depends on what Paul means by that word, good. He uses it again in the letter to the Romans in a verse that's precious to many of us, Romans 8.28. Some of you will be able to recite it with me. We know that in everything, God works for good with those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. But what's in Paul's mind when he says that all things work together for good, that God works for the good of those who love him in all things? In one of his books, um, Dr. Sam Wells, who's the rector of uh, St. Martin in the Fields, writes about that famous passage in Romans chapter 8. And he talks about the struggles he's had making sense of those verses until he began to see that, and I'm quoting, when the Apostle Paul says all things work together for good, good doesn't mean a decent home, a healthy family, a rewarding job, a wholesome pastor, and a long life. Paul has a very specific definition of good. Good for Paul means looking like Jesus. And actually, what better good could there possibly be? But the whole purpose of God among human beings, he says, is making us and remaking us to look like Jesus. And faith, Samuels goes on, means cooperating with that process. And what's true for us as individuals is also true for us as a church. God is at work and is actively seeking to make and remake this church to look like Jesus. 
so that we together become more and more like Jesus. Paul is writing this particular letter. He's writing in this passage to Christians in Philippi. Philippi had been a Greek settlement, but then uh, it became very clearly and definitely a Roman colony. The minute you walked into Philippi, you knew in Paul's day that you were in a Roman colony. Someone described Philippi as a small Rome. It had been settled over the years with Roman army veterans intentionally to bring the values, the culture, the very smell of Rome with them, to make it a bit of Rome, an outpost of Rome. And later in this letter, and I do encourage you to go home and read the letter to the Philippians, it's only four chapters, it'll take you 20 minutes max, there is so much in there, I, I think, for us in this season. But later in this letter, Paul picks up that image of the colony, the Roman colony, as he reminds the church that they are called to be not a colony of Rome, but a colony of heaven. Chapter 3, verse 20. The church is called to be not a small Rome, but a small heaven. An outpost, a foretaste of heaven, a prototype for the new creation God will bring on that great day of Christ Jesus, when God brings all things to completion. A post, a, 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 a signpost pointing us to that reality. Haywood Seed Baptist Church, Paul would say, is here to be an outpost of heaven. And sometimes that means the difficult uh, journey of learning how to disagree well and in love, it did for the church in Philippi. Haywood Seath Baptist Church is called to be an outpost of heaven. Don't know how that makes you feel. Makes me want to say he's not expecting much, is he? Not of you as a church, you're lovely, but of any of us as church. Especially when Paul goes on, so do everything without grumbling or arguing so that you may be blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Then, he says, you will shine among them like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. Blameless and pure. They're, they're words that Paul likes in this letter because he's used them before, even earlier in the passage we've read. This is my prayer, he says, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness, filled with the life of Jesus, the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ, to the glory and praise of God. They're great words, aren't they? I don't know whether you ever sit there listening to a preacher and think, oh, they're preaching, they're words, but somehow we don't connect them with the reality of what God is doing in our lives. They're great words, but how on earth are we meant to live like that? 
Let's just stop and remember for a minute just what happens when we become Christians, when we give our life back to God. As we give our lives to God, so the very spirit of Jesus comes to live in us. The very spirit of Jesus is living in your life, in mine, in our life together now. The spirit that empowered and motivated Jesus, that very same Holy Spirit, comes to live in us. And it's in the light of that awesome reality that we are to work out our salvation, to work out what has already been put within us to become more and more what we are in Christ. It's a very high calling. But it doesn't happen overnight. We are always a work in process. And it doesn't happen as if by magic. It's interesting what, what um, uh, James has been sharing with us, really. God works in us, but we need to cooperate. We need to allow and cooperate with what God is doing. You know, a bit like a pair of scissors that has two blades, doesn't it? That's why it's called a pair of scissors. A scissors with one blade doesn't do very well. We need the two blades working together, just as God works in us, and we work with God. We work with God not by screwing up every ounce of determination and being determined that we will love that person and forgive that person and be gracious and kind. You know, my teeth are aching not by screwing up every ounce of moral energy we have, not, but by primarily by growing the roots of our lives ever deeper into Christ through things like prayer and Bible reading, but not just Bible reading, by putting into practice what we read, by living out the life of Jesus. And things like, says Paul, forgiving one another, giving way to one another in love. Our younger son is uh, into trees. He's an arboriculturalist. And it's that image of a tree, the fruit of righteousness. And how does your apple tree grow apples? It doesn't grow apples by standing there and determining to grow apples. It, it doesn't grow apples by going down to the shop and buying some and hanging it on its branch. No, it grows its apples by sinking its roots deep into the soil and by allowing the goodness to rise up through the tree until the fruit grows. As we root our lives more and more deeply in Christ, so it is that the fruit of righteousness grows. And yes, it is a lifelong process. It is a life, we are a, a lifelong project of God's spirit. And in God's lifelong project, nothing is more important than that we allow him and work with him to continue to make us more and more like Jesus. There are lots of things we don't understand. There are lots of ways it strikes us that God's not very efficient. But this morning... As we continue to wait and look uh, for, for a future minister for this church this morning, 
the living God is here. He's here in this church, which probably isn't perfect, but is most certainly a church that God loves. He is here. He is reassuring us that he is at work. He's reminding us that he knows what he's doing, that he can take everything we bring. And he is calling us to trust him and to give ourselves afresh to the work that he is doing of making us more like Jesus. And the awesome truth is that the God who has begun a good work in us is continuing it in his way and will continue it until that great day of Christ Jesus when all things cry glory. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. And until that day, until that day we say to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or even imagine, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever, and all God's people say, Amen. Let's just take a moment or two of quietness. A moment or two. when personally and perhaps as a church together we bring our confusion, our exhaustion, our disappointment, all of the questions about what's right and what's wrong, what we've done right, what we haven't done right. When we bring the hurts, the hurts that sometimes we inflict on one another. In these few moments, we bring all of these things. We open our lives before the Lord who is here, who knows, who understands and who stands in our midst looking around at us with eyes that are full of love and understanding. And as he looks, he says to us, my people I know, trust in me. Lord, thank you for that promise which has been so foundational to my life and to so many people's lives. That promise that the good work that you have begun in us, you will continue by your spirit until you bring it and all things to completion. Thank you that in these moments we can surrender afresh to you 
and we bless you for the depth of your wise, redeeming love. As we place our whole trust and confidence in you, fill us afresh with your spirit, wash us in the rivers of your grace and your mercy, and continue to root us ever more deeply in you, we pray, as we bless and thank you in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. We're going to gather our morning together before James comes and prays for us by singing uh, an old